Hello and welcome to Coloured Souls. My name is Jamie Gladstone and here we will discuss current affairs in race policy, developments in education, African, Caribbean and South American history, as well as important texts in post-colonial literature. Epistemicide, as the systematic destruction of rival forms of knowledge, is at its worst nothing less than symbolic genocide. In this episode, we will discuss the detrimental effects and impact of epistemicide on communities of the global south. Many of the inequalities we see in the world today can be considered as the legacies of colonialism. Epistemic violence has shaped the ways in which we understand the relationship of power and dominance between colonizers and colonized. Imperialist powers, such as Britain, were able to use their global positionality to control the peoples they oppressed economically, politically, and often culturally. The ways in which a particular culture formulates its knowledge is intricately bound up with the very identity of its people, their way of making sense of the world, and the value system that holds that worldview in place. The term epistemicide was coined by the Portuguese sociologist Boaventura de Souza Santos in his introduction to the multi-volume project Reinventing Social Emancipation Towards New Manifestos. He used it to describe one of the more pernicious effects of globalization upon developing countries, that is the destruction of their own systems of knowledge. Although we will explore examples in the wider global context, we do not even have to leave the boundaries of Britain to find evidence of epistemicide. So epistemicide works in many ways. Knowledges that are grounded in an ideology that is radically different from the dominant one will by and large be silenced completely. Ideologies which are encoded within a discourse of domination solidifies the self-importance of the dominant power. The silencing of academics and journals due to methods which do not align with the rigid guidelines of academia has allowed for a space in which funding is limited and research is carried out by people outside of, for example, an indigenous community, whereby their epistemological understanding of the world may be diminished into the realms of fetish or fancy. Ultimately, the aim of these discourses are totalitarian. They serve only to subjugate non-politically Western ways of thinking and learning. In effect, epistemicide has been used as a tool of colonization historically, and as we will explore, continues to do so today. With such intentions founding the very institutions that govern the so-called developed world, what chance did indigenous voices stand of being heard? Murata Mita, quoted in Linda Tuiwai Smith's Decolonizing Methodologies, Research in Indigenous Peoples, in the context of the Maori of New Zealand, said that we have a history of people putting Maori under a microscope in the same way that scientists look at an insect. The ones doing the looking are giving themselves the power to define. The power to define. It's a key concept when discussing epistemicide, or in part epistemic violence. What many communities around the world have faced, and are currently facing, argues Smith, could be attributed to the emergence of the period of enlightenment, a time which provided the spirit, the impetus, the confidence, and the political and economic structures that facilitated the search for new knowledges. The project of the Enlightenment is often referred to as modernity, 
and that project is said to have provided the stimulus for the Industrial Revolution, the philosophy of liberalism, the development of disciplines in the sciences, and the development of public education. In order to fundamentally manufacture these developments, imperialism had to take the front seat. Although imperialism had the effect of drawing many things to its centre, economically speaking, it was also a system that had the intentions of reaching outwards, impacting upon and influencing everything that it came into contact with. To speak of imperialism in this way personifies the system which can often disengage an institution from those who support the system, and so it's important to remember that this system of epistemicide and domination was being operated by people those with economic and political power to work globally, and those that disrupted and abused indigenous people. One such example of epistemic violence in colonial practices can be found in the enforcement of English as the language of education in the Indian education system in the early 19th century. The value placed on English knowledge only served to discredit and invalidate knowledges rooted in local and native languages. Thus the power dynamic was exercised through the English language. This extends across the globe and across languages. English is not unique in this, as Spanish, Portuguese, French and other languages were used as tools of colonial dominance. This is also present on Britain's shores, and was used as one of the deciding factors in the categorisation of Caribbean children as being educationally subnormal. For more on this, see Bernard Cord's book How the West Indian Child Has Made Educationally Subnormal in the British School System. Epistemic violence in the suppression of language, whether the use of patois in the Caribbean, Spanish in the Americas, Arabic in Britain or any other tongue, posits an emphasis on the use of language and the correct language. Such an emphasis can be viewed as a violent act against the speaker. For language is more than communication. It is history, culture, identity, spirituality and sentimentality. We exist in unique spaces in each language and multilingualism should be celebrated as a means of traversing the racialized borders of society and utilized to take advantage of the fluidity of multiple ethnic identities. The suppression of language can often find itself locked into nationalism, for if one wants to occupy or invade space, they must obey the language rules of that space. This could be referred to as conditional tolerance, much like the kind that appears to haunt one of the fundamental British values which hang over the nation's education institutions. With the suppression of language, an entire part of the self is suppressed with it. This is not a situation unique to a singular community. Ethnically speaking, it affects all people that call Britain their home who speak another language, either as their mother tongue or as part of a duality. For example, children born in the UK to parents, whom are born elsewhere, that wish for their children to know the language of their heritage. Living in two languages already creates a sense of double consciousness, in which the speaker can inhabit two cultural worlds which may differ greatly in customs and traditions. And, symbolically, the diminution of one's mother tongue is in effect a means by which to gag, to silence, to marginalise, and erode away a person's cultural identity. It is to speak the language of the oppressor and the oppressed. Language discrimination also occurred in Puerto Rico, where there was a long public service campaign in the mid-1990s to encourage the correct use of the Spanish language under the slogan Idioma defectuoso, pensamiento defectuoso, which translates to defective language, defective thought. Sponsored by a well-recognized private university, the campaign consisted initially of three television spots of 60 seconds, which reunited some of the most popular Puerto Rican figures of their time, including writers, 
television and radio personalities, top musicians and news broadcasters. The spot encouraged the audience to speak Spanish right and with pride, and ends with the words, El idioma es la sangre del espíritu, or the language is the blood of the soul. The ad emphasized the formal and technical aspects of Spanish language and tied it to being a true Puerto Rican. The public figures that appeared in the spot condemned the use of anglicisms or loanwords from English in common conversations. As such, English was considered a threat to the purity of Puerto Rican culture, an idea that effectively disenfranchised the majority of Puerto Ricans on the island and was exported to Puerto Ricans born and raised in the US. Franz Fanon undertook a significant effort to make his readers aware of the socio-historical and psychological impact that language has on the colonial subjects. He asserted in Black Skin, White Masks that language is akin to assimilation in that the more the language of the colonizer is assimilated, the whiter he gets. Furthermore, he highlighted a phrase which ascribed language to whiteness. In France, they say, to speak like a book. In Martinique, they say, to speak like a white man. Fanon further explains that the possession of language implies empowerment, as it confirms people's cultural adequacy, making reference to the citizens of Martinique bettering themselves by learning the French of France, which elevated them above the Creole-speaking islanders. In The Wretched of the Earth, Fanon explained how language becomes a weapon used by the oppressor to dehumanize the oppressed. The terms the settler uses when he mentions the native are zoological terms. When the settler seeks to describe the native fully in exact terms, he constantly refers to the bestiary. Fanon makes a point of asserting the real-life implications that language has for the oppressed and the impact that this can have on one's self-image. Even after Fanon's research, the politics of language in the Caribbean are seldom evaluated outside of a purely literary context. Literature was often employed as a means to deflect attention away from the importance of language and influence in perceptions of cultural identity, whilst simultaneously serving to suppress criticism for those opposed to the way that restricted viewpoints. For many scholars in the Caribbean, language became a matter of form and fiction, taking a positionality similar to that of Edouard Glissant in looking at the creolization of language and culture rather than meaning of truth. To this day, language remains a site of cultural struggle in the Caribbean and at times for Afro-Caribbean children here in Britain's classrooms. Ultimately, it would appear that a sacrifice of one's core identity is the criteria for assimilating into Western culture. This can manifest as an internal battle between the languages of colonizer and colonized. A double consciousness of the soul, plagued by the panopticon of the white gaze, deeply entrenched in the epidermal racial schema in which white is right, and the darker your skin, the less value you are attributed by default. For more detail on the white gaze in the epidermal schema, check out episode 4 of this podcast, To Be or Not To Be, The Impact of Labelling. And for more on the use of language as a means to subjugate, check out episode 4 of season 1's podcast, Do We Subjugate Ourselves With Language? So with all this in mind, it could be said that by having command of the language of the colonial power, the more respected you are likely to be in that particular society. Still not an equal, but more respected. When viewed in the context of, for example, 
native languages and communities across the world, and in particular the ways in which European languages have been used as tools to colonize the tongue. An internal conflict of being neither here nor there becomes even more salient, thus destabilizing and dividing an entire group of people from their heritage, allowing for invading ideologies and epistemologies to take root. As peoples move from one location to another, this language-based oppression can manifest in multiple ways. Albert Memmi in The Colonizer and the Colonized, when discussing colonial bilingualism, stated that The colonized is saved from literacy, only to fall into linguistic dualism. Although many of the colonized will never have the good fortune to suffer the tortures of colonial bilingualism. This colonial bilingualism creates a cultural paradox in that the possession of two languages simply provided two tongues in conflict, a double consciousness of communication. Furthermore, the tongue in which the colonized express their feelings, emotions, wishes and desires, the very things which make us human, was the same tongue which was valued the least. With language holding such power in societies, occasioning a difference between life and death, the use of language as a means to build as opposed to destroy could be a way to align to the fluidity of identity. For more detail on this, again see the Parsley Massacre in Flores Rodriguez's 2012 paper and the season one episode of this podcast do we subjugate ourselves with language. Turning our attention now to the African continent, we'll briefly discuss African ways of knowing. That is to say, some of the traditional African epistemologies and paradigms, and how they've interacted with Western models. So many African ways of knowing are grounded in indigenous African cultural traditions, history, and ecology. According to Elias Mpofu, modern Africans operate on multi-layered knowledge systems. That is to say, that in former British colonies, Africans used both their indigenous cultural heritage and Anglo-Western knowledge systems. In this context, the two knowledge systems should be working together in order to mutually enrich the African student's learning. However, as reality would have it, modern African education is far from being regarded as a true pedagogy of liberation and progress, as highlighted in Constantine Ungaro's 2007 paper, African Ways of Knowing and Pedagogy Revised. African ways of knowing not only reflect the African worldview, but they also define the African personhood. Equally, indigenous ways of knowing form part of the African philosophical understandings, which were misunderstood, misinterpreted, ridiculed, and ignored during the scramble for and the colonization of Africa, which is generally agreed upon to begin with the Berlin Conference in 1884. Africa in the 19th century was portrayed as the dark continent, a land without a cultured mind, which was used as justification for the occupation and subjugation of the Africans by imperial forces. One of the earliest formal education systems, implemented in what was then known as Rhodesia, was functionally known as Taming the Savage, and amounted to nothing more than a division of African education. That is to say, indigenous knowledge systems were denigrated and almost wholly ignored when it came to the construction and planning of an African educational curriculum. What was being affected was the systemic destruction of African ways of knowing, the pedagogies used, and the indigenous systems of survival. This led to a severe diminution of Africa's self-esteem and efficacy. 
With the willful destruction of indigenous infrastructure, Africa was placed into a position of dependence, posited as a helpless receptacle of both pity and charity from the West. As various African countries have gained their independence from European powers, there still appears to be a contingent of the local elites who tend to marginalise indigenous cultures. It is not surprising that some people measure success in life by the distance one moves away from one's indigenous culture. If we look at this in the context of Richard Dyer's notion of proximity to whiteness and of Fanon's discussion of assimilation, we can see that by rejecting one's cultural heritage and embracing more fully that of the so-called dominant power, a greater responsibility of acceptance may be achieved. Children of wealthier families will usually attend local elite schools or go to schools abroad. Unfortunately, precious little is being enacted in the promotion and preservation of indigenous practices by many African politicians. Equally, even some African teachers are still being guided by the colonial ways of thinking and teaching. According to Shiza's 2004 study, Zimbabwean teachers tended to stereotype indigenous knowledge as backward, retrogressive, unauthentic and unreliable since it could not be verified by scientific methods. Based on the ways in which colonial rule and imperialism work to raise indigenous ways of knowing to the ground, imagine that all of these epistemologies were replaced wholesale with a total immersion in the epistemology of the global political north. Would that be equal to indigenous development? In short, no. As proposed by Orsabel in 1963 and 1978 respectively, meaningful learning occurs when new material is related to the learner's existing knowledge. And this ultimately depends upon how this knowledge can be integrated into indigenous value systems. If a people's culture and values are not integrated in the communication interchange, then a sense of alienation ensues, and no development can be expected. Real development will only take place when a people's culture and value systems are shared globally. Returning to indigenous epistemologies will not erase epistemicide, which has characterised the ways that the imperial west and the global north has interacted with traditional paradigms. It is not to imply that there should be a yearning for the good old days, with the assumption that the old systems were without their own flaws. In the same vein, it makes little sense to simply mourn the losses of the past without working to develop the present and the future. Understanding that there are opportunities to utilise both indigenous epistemologies and western ways of thinking can promote multi-layered and pluralistic knowledge systems. Thank you very much for joining me on today's podcast. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to hit that subscribe button on your favorite podcast app to be notified every time a new episode comes out. And I will speak to you soon.